ahead and get started. Um, I'm Monique. Um, I'm a pediatric physical therapist. Um, really, um, the purpose of the presentation um, is from experience of going on trips or knowing friends that have gone on trips and getting kids with disabilities and then not having any idea of what to do with them when they they come to see them, mostly on short-term mission trips, but it can be applied to long-term mission trips. So really just giving ideas and activities on things to tell parents, activities that you can use if you're going to treat them, um, really without having to use any type of equipment whatsoever, um, using your own body or using your hands um, as if you, you know, because when you're out on a mission field, you don't really have a fancy clinic necessarily with all equipment and things like that. So that's kind of um, the presentation geared for. Um, so just some information about myself. Um, I graduated from PT school from Azusa Pacific in 2009. Um, I just recently got my Doctor of Science um, from the University of Oklahoma. Uh, I've been practicing in pediatrics, all settings, school-based, outpatient, early intervention um, for about 13 years. And then I also volunteer and go on short-term missions with Global Health Outreach and do some education part with uh, Medical International. So what we're going to talk about today, we're going to briefly go over the four stages, or the, the stages of gross motor development, and then we're going to talk about, focus on three common impairments that we often see in pediatrics, but really all of the activities and exercises that I talk about today can be used on a variety of kids, just not, not necessarily these three specific diagnoses. Um, and then we're going to talk about just um, some low-tech exercises and activities that you can do for these kids when you encounter them on a mission trip and there's no pediatric PT available to kind of help guide you on what to do. And then just briefly talk about some tips and, and tools for educating and supporting parents um, when you're talking and, provide, and with them and working with them. Um, so just briefly, the focus of, of PT um, in pediatrics, we're really working on helping a child gain new skills. A lot of times when we think rehab, it's, you know, rehabbing from old skills. But children with disabilities, they're really learning these skills for the first time. Um, so that's really our focus unless a child um, maybe had a skill and they had surgery and had to come back for therapy. But really, the majority of it is um, working on, on new skills for kids. Um, we focus on gross motor, so those are the large muscle movements. But we really work with the whole child in trying to get them to be able to just function wherever they're at in their community, in their school, um, and home to be able to be the best that they can be and participate to the best of, of their abilities. So briefly looking at the developmental milestones, at three months, a kid should be able to be on their stomach, start pushing themselves up, hold their head up a little bit. Um, we start noticing signs that maybe they're delayed. If they, you put them on their stomach and they like to just keep their head down and they have a hard time looking up, regardless of whatever it is you're trying to use to motivate them. Um, they prefer to lay on their back. They don't really like to move. Um, those are signs of um, they're possibly maybe delayed in their development, gross motor-wise. At six months, a child should be able to sit up with using their hands to kind of support themselves they start being able to, to roll over. And they start actually being able to accept a little bit of weight on their feet if you put them in standing. So usually if they're, not, if they're showing signs of delay, they don't want to sit, or they have a really strong extension pattern, they're constantly throwing themselves backwards in extension every time you try to put them in flexion, 
or they lift they lift their legs up when you try to put them in standing because they're not quite ready to to weight bear um, on their legs. So at nine months, they should be able to sit and they should be able to reach for objects while they're sitting. Um, they should start being able to do like some army crawling or creeping on hands and knees. Usually for kids that are delayed, they don't even want to bother putting weight through their hands. Um, it's difficult for them to kind of push up. They've got some weakness. It's difficult for them to move their legs or like if they're army crawling, they'll move their arms only and not move their legs. And then at 12 months, they should be able to pull themselves up into standing. They can start cruising, doing a little bit of standing on their own and even maybe taking some steps on their own. Usually at 12 months, um, if they're delayed, you have to kind of hold them in standing versus them being able to stand at a support surface, or they're not even yet able to stand and accept their weight in standing yet. So 15 months, they should be able to walk independently. They should be able to get themselves up off the floor without like holding on to any type of furniture. They should be able to pick up objects if they've dropped them on the ground or if they've, they've thrown them on the ground. Um, and then for kids that are, are delayed, you know, they may not even be walking yet. They may actually not even be sitting yet, but they struggle. Or sometimes they're starting to walk on their tiptoes. Um, I don't have a picture. But then by two, they should be, you know, getting some of those basic skills that we see, running, jumping, climbing, doing stairs if they have access to them, um, things like that. So um, those are kind of the basic gross motor skills. Um, so the first uh, disability we're going to talk about is Down syndrome. So the incidence of Down syndrome throughout the world is about one in a thousand live, live births. And I say live births because in some countries, um, it's still very common for them to abort children with Down syndrome. Um, in some countries, it even is, um, the mother doesn't necessarily even get a choice. It's a requirement um, that the child is aborted. Um, however, um, across the lifespan, they have definitely been living longer than um, in previous years. The lifespan of a child or a person with Down syndrome is about 60 years old. There's about three different types of Down syndrome. The most common one that we see is trisomy 21. Um, but the other two kinds, um, they're rare, and those, those people usually have less uh, facial features. And they actually, their muscle tone is a little bit um, closer to normal. And then they also, gross motor-wise, um, are not as delayed as other peers with that may have uh, trisomy 21. So actually, most children with Down syndrome, they actually develop along the same typical gross motor scale that neurotypical kids do. They just happen to do it at a slower rate. So they'll start rolling at 6 to 18 months versus 4 to 6 months, or they'll start standing at 12 to 38 months as opposed to closer to, you know, 12 months. Um, and then they'll start walking. It's a, it's a pretty wide range between 18 and 38 months. Um, so they follow the typical progression just at a much slower pace because of the low muscle tone um, and the decreased strength that they have. So common impairments that kids with um, Down syndrome have, low muscle tone. They do have a lot of ligamentous laxity, so their joints are really loose. Uh, decreased motor control, balance, coordination. And then they also, because of the ligamentous laxity, um, they have a, there's a percentage of kids with Down syndrome that actually will have um, C1, C2, um, allantoaxial vertebrae, um, have a lot of instability. So a lot of my children with Down syndrome, when they get ready to participate in extracurricular activities or sports, 
always make sure to have them go and get an x-ray to make sure that there's no instability in their neck before they start playing those sports. Um, other impairments for, to be aware of, that cognitive delays, feeding, feeding difficulties, speech difficulties, um, and hearing and vision difficulties. Some of those children may have. Some of them may have them all. Some of them may, may only have one. Some of them may have none. Um, oops. So other challenges that um, children or even just general people with Down syndrome face, obesity is a big one, um, diabetes, um, a lot of sometimes degenerative joint disease, cardiovascular health um, as well. So for physical therapy um, and children with Down syndrome, we don't necessarily focus on trying to help them speed up as far as meeting those gross motor milestones because we know that they follow their own scale. Um, we really try to work on f preventing poor movement strategies. Um, so like you can see the little girl in the picture, um, the way she's standing, she's putting a lot of strain on the knees and on the hips and on her ankles. So we try to prevent some of those poor postures. Sorry, can you see am I standing in your way? I see you leaning. Let me turn this. Um, and so we really try to work on preventing a lot of those poor postures to prevent things like the degenerative joint disease and getting them more active so that way um, they're not obese when they get older and they have good physical fitness regimen. And then we work on generalizing skills and postural control and balance and, and things like that. So some of the common things that I always get asked when I'm working with a child with Down syndrome is, when are they going to sit? When are they going to get to stand? When are they going to start walking? So those are kind of the activities that we'll talk about and I'll give you guys some ideas for. Um, so the first one is sitting. Um, so when we, when we work on sitting, we really need to make sure that they have good head control, good postural control. They're able to start weight bearing evenly through their hips before we actually start working on sitting. Um, so that way, and then we work on strengthening so we can prevent some of these poor postures and the slouching that often occurs um, for a child with Down syndrome. So before we do, um, so some of these little videos, you guys see this little doll here. Um, during COVID, we had to do a lot of telehealth, so I spent many of hours uh, creating videos for my patients and families to be able to um, do therapy at their home when maybe um, they weren't available because they had to work themselves. So there are some videos with dolls um, versus actually real children. So, um, But preparation for sitting, so we really want to work on head control. So putting them on their stomachs, um, this is a wedge, but you can easily use some blankets to form a wedge, rolling up blankets, um, or use even like a piece of wood and putting it at an angle to put the child on to really work on getting them to lift up their head and start getting some weight bearing through their arms. Um, when a child weight bears through their arms, it helps to develop the back musculature, which we also need for sitting activities. So... This is just a video of showing uh, a parent how to work on pull-to-sit. So a pull-to-sit activity is also working on pulling the child up by holding their arms and then the child actually pulling themselves up. So that helps to work on good neck strength and, and abdominal strength to help also for sitting. So when I have the child here, or the doll here, on a book, because some children, they're not quite strong enough to do it flat, flat from the floor, so if you elevate them by using a book or even by using a leg or, you know, whatever object, a box it could be, um, you're kind of making it a little bit easier for them to bring themselves up. So then that way they can start working on and engaging those core muscles. And then as they get stronger, then you can slowly lower them back.
back down to work on, on getting stronger. Um, another good activity for sitting is working on them getting themselves up into sitting. Now, it's not necessarily age-appropriate if a child's not able to sit yet for them to be able to get themselves up into sitting. However, it's a great activity to where you don't need any equipment, and you can help work on their stomach and their head movements. So basically, I'm just helping the, the, well, helping the doll come up into sitting by helping them rotate and then letting them do some of the work as well. So those are kind of some activities that we work on pre-sitting um, before we start working on sitting. Um, so supported sitting activities, uh, these are like static activities that we would work on to help a child to sit. So we can start with, we can use a wall to put the child up against, and that helps to teach them to sit upright, um, because this was the same little girl that we saw in this picture here. So at least when they're sitting up against the wall, they learn to sit upright to engage the stomach muscles and the pelvic muscles in order to be have a little bit better posture. Um, and then it also helps them to work on their lateral balance to prevent themselves from falling. So a lot of times if they can't sit against the wall, the corner of a wall is a really great spot because the corner kind of prevents them from falling over to the side, but then it helps them to work on sitting upright. So the other activity that we that we work on is having them actually be in sitting, but then using their arms to help support them in sitting. So in this picture, in this picture here, um, I'm having her put, I'm having her put her arms down and I'm kind of helping her hold her arms down while she's supporting herself in sitting. And then when we look at the other picture, it's holding her at her hips. So that way she, even though she's slouching because she's not quite ready to sit yet by herself, we're still working on those stomach muscles. So these are all static positions, meaning um, we're not doing any type of movement to get them to work. We're just actually doing the actual task of sitting. Um, when we work on sitting, too, we also work on our level of support. So when, it, when we first put a child into sitting, we're going to support them up at their armpits, kind of give them a lot of support. And then as they get stronger, we can go down to the stomach and then down to the hips as they get a little bit stronger and holding themselves up. Um, so some other activities for sitting. So these activities, we're also working on sitting. This little, this little guy here, he can actually already sit. We were actually working on a different task. But the picture is a good example of putting a child in sitting, and then they can actually use their legs to help support them. And I'm using my leg to help them sit on. So even if you don't have a step stool or a small step, this, your leg is actually a great, great sitting spot for a child. And um, we're working on some core strength, and he's actually able to use his legs to kind of help him hold himself up. So the other picture is the same position. She, the, she's just not straddling my leg. But as you can tell, like, she needs a lot more support. So I'm holding her up here, and I'm holding her down here to kind of teach her how to keep herself upright. As she gets stronger, then I can actually move my hands both down to her hips to kind of help her um, hold herself up in sitting. So these are all static positions. Um, I put this, this video in here because this is one of the dynamic things that we'll do when we work on sitting. Um, so instead of, you know, preventing, oh, sorry, it cut off. But she was sitting up and she fell over. So instead of me catching her and stopping her from falling over, I'm actually holding on to her um, and letting her bring herself back up. So now she's activating her own muscles. And she's working. You see she throws her head back because her stomach muscles aren't quite strong enough for her to, to come up completely from the side. 
but she's working on using those move, those muscles actively, so that way she can actually work on holding herself up. Can you guys over there see? Or am I standing in your way? I'm standing in your way. That's why you're laughing. Okay, <laughs> let me let me move back. <laughs> Okay, is that better? Yeah, okay. You guys should have said something. You're just standing, sitting there. <laughs> okay, so then the next t- task that we'll talk about is standing and walking. Um, I put standing and walking um, kind of in the same breath because usually once we start standing, you know, the parent is so eager to get them walking, we kind of just work on it all at the same time um, in order to, um, one, make the, the parent happy, right? Um, but then also to, um, they do kind of go hand in hand. So, again, in standing, this little girl here, um, you see she's really standing really far back. She's kind of hanging out on her knee ligaments here and on her hip ligaments. She's really trying to avoid using any type of muscle whatsoever. So we really want to work on optimal standing. So that means, you know, feet shoulder width apart. We're standing upright. Our hips and our knees and our feet are facing forward. And then we actually do stand with our knees slightly in flexion, um, even though we don't necessarily always realize that. So some preparation activities. Before we get to standing, a child needs to actually have the appropriate core strength to actually hold themselves up. Otherwise, when you do put them in standing, they're going to end up just flexing forward because they don't have the strong muscles in their core and their back muscles to actually stand up. So one of the activities that you can do is putting them in a tall kneel position. So here we're getting some good weight bearing through the hips and through the knees, but we've lowered kind of their center of gravity by taking away them standing on their feet to make it a little bit easier. So you can put them on any level of surface. So here I'm using my leg, but the step stool, a box, if there's, you know, in this, in this picture here, there's a table low, but a lot of times on the mission field, you don't necessarily have all that equipment. So, you know, my leg is, is a great surface for a child to be able to kneel on. Um, and what's important here, too, is that the bottom is not resting on the legs. Um, if the bottom is resting on the legs, we're not activating our core as much. So we want to lift those, have the bottom up. And my hand is kind of on the bottom a little bit, kind of pushing it forward to help the child to engage those muscles as well. Um, another activity um, that we do a lot of time, especially with kids with low tone, um, is we do a lot of joint compression. We want to help them. A lot of times when we first have a child with Down syndrome and we go to put them in standing, they immediately lift their legs up because they're not ready to stand. They're not ready to accept that weight. So we do a lot of proprioceptive input, and um, we'll do a lot of joint compression. So we'll do joint compression, which is basically holding at one at uh, putting your hands in between the joints. So if the microphone is the joint. I'm going to put my hands here on the opposite sides of the joint and kind of squeeze them together. Um, So as you can see here, like I'm squeezing or I'm pushing into the hip joint to kind of wake up that hip joint. And then we'll do the same thing at the knee, and then we'll do the same thing at the ankle to kind of really give them more proprioceptive input and wake them up for them to be able to be ready and standing. Um, When I'm in a clinic setting, I'll use actual ankle weights. So, you know, any ankle weight, you can go Walmart, get some one-pound adult wrist weights, and you can put them on the kid as ankle weights. And those are actually also a good activity if you happen to take some with you on a, on a trip. I usually will take a couple that I find. Um, sometimes I can find them at the $5 store and get them, and I'll, I'll bring some with me. 
So once we've done kind of some preparation for standing, it's now time to work on standing. Um, I think a lot of times when we think of a standing activity, we're just going to put them on the chair in front of the couch. They're going to be leaning on the couch, you know, working on their standing. Um, that's probably one of my least favorite activities because they're leaning forward. And for a child with Down syndrome, that's their favorite position, right? They're going to lean forward. They're going to put their head down, and they're not going to really do very much active standing and active core work. So I prefer to have them put their back up against the surface. You can put them up against a wall or a table that height um, or even up against your own body. And that way, they're not leaning forward. They're learning to stand upright. They're engaging their core muscles. Um, and then they can also look at you, and you can interact with them and talk with them and, and things like that. Um, another great activity for um, standing and to work on using the legs is is sit to stands. So here, oops. Oh, let me turn off the sound. So here we're working on sit to stand. Um, she does have on some braces, but you can do it without braces. Um, as she's getting up into standing, I'm helping by pushing her forward. And I'm moving her very slowly, waiting for her to initiate pushing. And right there is when she initiates her push. So then I help her go up into standing. So we're working on the activity of standing, but then we're also working on strengthening the muscles that are needed for standing. And then this picture here is just another version of the sit-to-stand. Um, this one is straddling, and, and then that one is facing forward. So those are some easy activities that can be done or that you can show a parent how to do when in standing or to work on standing. Um, so for after standing, once a child is now finally fully able to accept 100% of their weight, we're going to work on walking. When we, when we work on walking, usually with a typical kid, you know, we just hold their hands and then they start taking the steps and they start walking. Well, a child with um, disabilities, they don't automatically start doing that. So we have to break down the steps and teach them step-by-step step how to walk. And the first step is learning how to shift your weight back and forth to even to be able to to lift up your leg to move. So that's what these activities are looking at. So the first one, um, I have him here. Sta he's standing on top of my legs. Um, now, he, he's not able to stand by himself yet, but we're also working on, like I said, we'll work on standing and walking at the same time. Oops. So here, I'm using my legs. I'm pushing, bringing my legs up and down to kind of simulate the weight shifting for him. So it's a good activity. He's getting the weight shift, but then you see all of this trunk movement, and he's having to work also on holding himself upright and holding his and using his core muscles. Um, now, if he wasn't strong enough to be able to do this, then I would actually put my arms up here higher in his armpits to give him more support. But we've been working on this for a while, so we went from, from oops, sorry from armpits to hips, then down to the knees. And then actually, even sometimes, we'll go down to the ankles um, as the child starts to progress and get stronger. So the other way, when kids first starting to start to walk, they kind of waddle like a penguin. So that's why we work on that lateral weight shift. But we also want to work on weight shifting in the sagittal plane. So that's the going forward motion. So here, I have him in standing. And we're just working on picking up the leg and bringing it back. And I'm doing all of the work. But again, he's getting that input into his feet and figuring out how to stand. We're singing the hokey pokey, so I'm shaking his leg. That's why we're shaking the leg. But um, you know, you can move the, you can just move the leg back and forth, and then switch to the other leg um, as, as you know, just as if you're walking. 
So, and then the next video here, so this is the same position as the sitting um, picture, but here we're getting some active step. So in both of these pictures, I was doing most of the work for him, and now we're working on getting him to do the work for himself. So what you can't see is um, at the edge of the picture, there's a couch that he's going to reach for. Um, but you can use any object. You can use another person for them to reach for, or sometimes if there's no surface, then I will actually just... Oops. I would just ha actually have them just be up and standing. Um, so he's going he's gonna to stand himself up, or I'm going to help him stand up, and he's going to pick up his leg, and then he's going to take a step. So you see, like, he struggles with taking the step. He's still learning how to take the step, but we're working on him starting to take the steps for him. So my leg is blocking him, so he doesn't have a choice but to actually lift his leg up and take a step. So, but if there wasn't a surface there, then I would just have him take a step and sit back down. So here, I'll show it again. So um, first I have to get his feet right. And you see he's kind of, he's, he's ready before I'm ready to help him. But, um, you know, he's figuring out how to t start taking the steps and doing the weight shift on his own um, as far as moving his own legs by himself. So once we've kind of, these are other activities that we'll also do for weight shifting. So this one here is similar to the other video that we just did, except for this time he's going to end up taking two steps. So I'm going to let him lean forward to, towards the support surface. So you can use another chair or a couch or even another person. And he's just going to lean. And again, he's working on taking the steps himself. And you see this leg is very delayed as far as he's trying to figure out how to take the step and how to weight shift himself over. And then eventually he does it. So a lot of times we don't think about um, how much work and how much effort it actually takes to go into walking. You know, most kids, when they're typically developed, they just automatically figure it out. But a child with disabilities or a even a child with Down syndrome, it takes them a while to figure out what it is that you want them to do, and it takes a lot of practice and routine for them to actually pick up the activity and do. So there's a lot of practice repetition with all of the activities that we're doing, um, even though we vary them just a little bit. And so the same thing um, with this video here, we've been working on this for a while, so now he's, he's figured out how to take the steps, and we're kind of, I'm not holding his hands because I want his hands to be free. I want him to rely on his own trunk. When we hold a kid with their hands, we're actually supporting their trunk for them. So this way, he's got to rely on his own trunk and actually take the steps, and I'm just holding him by the back of his pants um, to kind of work on getting him to take the steps. So all of that, you know, it's actually probably most of the same kid. You know, that has taken months on months on months to kind of get that kid to be able to do that. Um, so usually when I talk to a parent, I give them these, those activities and say, all right, these are the activities you're going to work on for six months. And then once they actually do that, then I'll give them new activities. So it's not like, um, especially if you're on a short-term trip and you're going to give them activities and you're like, oh, well, maybe I didn't give them enough. It's enough because it's going to take them a long time to figure out how to do um, the activities that you gave them for them to be able to do them by themselves. Um, so with walking, again, you're going to go from a high level of support to a lower level of support. So you start with two hands, and you can go to one hand, and you can go to the hips, to the knees, to the ankle, as they start getting better with walking. Um, walkers and push toys are great, but obviously you're not, you're not, you know, there's no target necessarily when you're out very far, you know, on the mission field. So sometimes I'll tell the parent, hey, get a box or something, fill it with some, some rocks or something. 
And then that's a great object for the child to be able to push when they're starting to learn to walk. Um, okay, so so those are kind of some of the common things that parents ask me when I'm working with a child for Down, with Down syndrome. So for autism, too, the activities in here are some of the common things that parents always have concerns about. But the activities that we just talked about for sitting, standing, and walking can also be applied for a child to, with autism. Um, the prevalence for autism is about 1 in 160 children. But actually, I think in the U.S. it's something like... Um, I think the the recent um, statistic was like 14 or 1 to 14. So every 1 in 14 child gets diagnosed with autism um, here in the U.S. Um, and there, you know, it's called autism spectrum for a reason. There's such a wide variety of cognitive and communicative and physical abilities that um, no no two children are the same. Oops. Um, but communication is usually often the primary focus when you know we talk about children with autism. Gross motor is, ne is not necessarily um, the prominent thing on your mind when you think of, am I going to treat treating a child with autism? So, but gross motor and autism, it's been getting a lot more, um, I guess, news recently. Um, oftentimes, they're starting to see the, dif the connection between gross motor and autism. Um, oftentimes, like when I'm assessing a child and I'm interviewing the parent, they tell me, oh, yeah, they were clumsy when they were, they were a baby or... You know, they didn't want to move very much, and those are kind of indicators um, of signs that maybe they noticed but didn't take note as an issue because, you know, again, they're focused on, on other things when um, dealing with a child with autism. Most of the time here in the U.S., we start getting them closer to about two years of age when they're really noticing some of those impairments, like with running and jumping and coordination. Um, but in reality, about 80% about of children with autism do have some type of motor impairment, um, but again, I think since it's not the main focus, um, it often gets, gets overlooked. So some of the common gross motor impairments that we see with kids with autism is their gait. Um, a lot of times we see them walking up on their tiptoes. Um, they definitely have some functional play um, deficits. Um, even when they're not a younger child, they tend to kind of play by themselves or not necessarily have good pretend play skills. They have difficulty with joint attention tasks, so those ball skills, where you have to engage with other people. Um, and then oftentimes, too, a lot of kids with autism are also kind of on the lower tone um, side, so they have difficulty with some coordination and agility tasks as well. So the two most common, well, the, yeah, probably the two most common things that I get for, usually we're seeing children with autism around two, three years old, um, again, we're getting them a little bit late, but usually the common things are ball skills. They can't catch, they can't throw. You know, some of the more of those playground skills, as they get older, you know, parents want them to be able to play with other peers, but they don't quite have the skills to do that. So I put ball skills in here because um, it's actually a quite easy task to work on. Um, you don't even necessarily need a ball. I learned a lot over uh, doing telehealth over COVID and rolled up socks make a really great ball. So you don't necessarily need a ball. Um, you know, you can find things around the house um, without having to go and buy a ball. So when we start working on ball skills, I work on catching and throwing at the same time. I've never really <laughs> have a kid have a hard time with throwing. They're very great at throwing, even non-throwing objects. Um, so catching is usually one of the things that we work on the most. So when we work on catching, I always start with a child in sitting and with their back supported. It just helps them to pay attention more, not that they... Um, 
aren't able to stand, but it helps them pay attention more. They're not having to focus on their body, and sometimes they're stimming or they're staring off at lights or, you know, staring at other objects or their fingers. So this actually just helps them a little bit better. And the thing about catching is you have to understand what it means. You can't just tell a child to catch, and then they're automatically just catching it, right? So as I'm throwing the ball to him, I'm using the words catch, and I'm putting it in his hands for him to be able to do it. And then I'm trying to get him to throw it back to me, but obviously he's ready to be done before I'm ready for him to be done with the activity. So he throws it, he finally throws it back to me, and then, you know, he's ready, he's ready to go. Um, but that's what we do. We start in sitting, and we kind of work on back and forth. And then we go to sitting, but unsupported. So right here in this video here, he's actually kneeling on his knees. And this ball is great. He really likes this ball. It's a, it gives him a lot of input. It's nice and squishy, so it's distracting him. But you see, like, he's still having a hard time kind of putting it in his hands and taking it um, as far as the catching aspect goes of it. But over time, they do actually eventually figure out how to catch it in that position. So then we finally go into standing, but then also you see he's still supported up against the couch. We're not quite yet into freestanding yet. And all of this is, is actually the same child. It took us about, I didn't have him for very long, but I think it took us about three months for us to get to this position here. So again, we're working on it. We're working on it weekly, um, trying to kind of get it ingrained in the child's um, and head and them, them understanding. So finally, he's starting to understand, you know, you see him, he's presenting his hands out to catch the ball. He's still quite distracted by the ball, but then eventually he's throwing it back to me. So then he puts his hands out, he's catching it, and then eventually he'll throw it back. So now we're at the point where he actually understands the activity, and we're ready to actually move on to, you know, just playing the activity of catch. So um, for this particular child, he turned three and transitioned um, into the school district before... We got to finish working on it, but eventually, um, you know, the child can start working on catching, you know, if, if the brother actually throws the ball correctly, but, you know, it's a great activity to help them get engaged with their siblings or other peers, um, and so oftentimes that's what the parent wants. Well, I just want them to be able to play with others. So this is a great gross motor activity that they can learn how to do. One of the other one activities, again, another playground activity is jumping. So jumping also requires under, a little bit of cognitive understanding. You know, you can't just tell somebody to jump. They have to actually know what that word means before they can actually jump. They need to have equal leg length because then otherwise they're kind of, you know, doing a leaping type movement. And then they also need to have good balance and coordination and, and motor control. So just kind of looking at the jumping milestones, a kid does kind of do that kind of leaping when they're first, like, 18 months to 24. And then they start being able to actually jump up at two years old. And then we progress to jumping down and jumping over obstacles and then jumping forward by, by three years old. So, um, but usually jumping up is the first thing that we start with. So really when we're working on jumping activities, um, we start with just basic movement and keeping both feet on the ground. So squatting down, picking up objects, a lot of that repetitive movement is great strengthening activity, but then it's also the same movement that we do for jumping. So then once we go to squatting, then we'll go up onto our tiptoes and teaching them how to actually elevate and get their feet up off of the ground. And this here, um, yes, she's on the therapy ball, which you may not necessarily have when you're on the mission field, but you can also use, I've used couch cushions before, or I've used, um, you know, just squishy things I find 
being on like very soft grass or even sand kind of gives some feedback. But here we're working on bouncing on the ball, and you see she's trying to figure out how to kind of get her legs going. And here I'm waiting for her to start pushing through her legs, um, and then I actually will help her with the task of jumping. So you see, like, she's really, really trying to figure it out. She finally pushes through her legs, and then she gets the feeling of actually coming up into the air. And then you see her trying to do it again, you know, but her legs, she doesn't quite have the motor control. So any type of surface that gives a little bit of feedback is a great surface to use for jumping. Sometimes... If the parent is okay with it, we'll use the bed or use a chair, but I try not to use furniture that they actually have to sit on because I don't want the child to learn later that it's okay for them to jump on some of, the, some of those surfaces. Um, but the same thing that we do with standing and sitting, we start with a higher level of support, and then we go to two hands, and then we go to one hand to help work on jumping. So this little girl, we've progressed to the ground versus a ball. And we're working on bending our knees. Again, I'm waiting for her to push through her legs. She pushes through her legs, and she comes up, and she's happy about it. Um, so then she's trying to do it herself by going up on her tiptoes. Um, so she's, she's still trying to work on it, but that's a good way to work on jumping is by just lifting the child up, but also making sure that you're using the words and the command for the task. So um, tiptoe walking, that's also one of the common things that we see with children with autism. Um, some of the, sometimes the tiptoe walking can be corrected, sometimes it can't. It kind of just depends on um, how severe it is, at what age you see the child when, they, when they've been tiptoe walking, and then whether or not it's a sensory issue. Some kids, I find, they do it because it's habitual and they, it, they don't know anything else, but some kids, I find, they actually really enjoy it. So even... If we put them in some braces and we've we've done a whole bunch of like casting to try to really get range of motion back, once those braces are off, then they're just back up on their tiptoes because they enjoy it. Um, but we definitely want to try to, as best as possible, address it because it's not a functional gait. Um, it makes balance more challenging. It's difficult to run. Kids are most li- are more prone to tripping and falling when they're on their tiptoes. So. Um, we work on stretching the calf muscles and the hamstring muscles and even the trunk muscles because, as you can see, in every single one of these pictures, the child is actually in a plantar flex position, which is what tiptoe is, but it makes it look like they're not in a plantar flexion just because the heels are on the ground. So a lot of times, if they're really, really tight, they'll get the trunk flexion, and then that makes their hips tight. So we will also work on stretching out um, the trunk as well. And then muscles that we need to strengthen, we need to strengthen the muscles here in the front, the anterior tib, and then we also need to strengthen the glutes and the core muscles as well because those are the muscles they're not using when they're walking. So stretching out the calf muscles, um, this is probably the most common way, right, when we stretch out a child's um, legs, but sometimes it's actually really difficult. If they're really, really tight, it's difficult to stretch out the ankle in that position, And so we need to bend the knee up so that way we can actually get a stretch in the ankle. We also need to stretch out the hamstring since it also attaches at the knee just like the the calf muscle. I prefer to stretch a child laying down in either one of the two positions because as you can see here, the child's stretching here on their own. They're kind of fake stretching because they have so much curvature here in their back. They're kind of cheating as they're stretching. And then we also need to strengthen. So doing sit-to-stands on an unstable surface, 
So again, a pillow, a couch cushion, those are all great activities to have them sit to stand from. Lifting objects with their foot. So bean bags or, you know, if you're not, if you're, obviously you don't necessarily have bean bags with you on the mission field. Sometimes I'll use very light things, you know, I'll bring, I'll bring stuff with me. Toy cars or, you know, sometimes anything flat surface, leaf, a piece of paper that you can crumple up, anything that can actually sit on top of the child's foot. And then I like to do duck walking a lot. Um, I will, a lot of times I have a hard time with that, so having the child put their feet on top of your feet and then walking with them helps them to kind of get those feet into to dorsiflexion, which is helping to strengthen that, that anterior tip muscle. And then activities in general, walking on any type of uphill, walking downhill, walking on an elevated surface. So, um, you know, making a makeshift bean bag or balance beam out of a log or, you know, some rocks. Those are great activities to get those hills down. And then also down dog and tree pose are also great activities um, for strengthening and for getting the hill down as well. So the last diagnosis is um, cerebral palsy. This is probably the most common that, uh, for the kids that I have on my caseload at the moment is cerebral palsy. Um, and it is one of the most common motor disabilities out there. There are various types of cerebral palsy. I think obviously we see most of the spastic pal uh, cerebral palsy and that can be you know, half of the body or just the legs, or it can impact the, just the arms, or impact the arms and the legs. And then there's also ataxic and dyskinetic. Um, and those kids are, they, they, they don't have very good postural control, so they're kind of walking, it looks like they're dancing, or they're struggling to kind of hold up their trunk as they're moving. And then you can have a mixture of both. Um, I once had a child that was, um, half of his body was Down syndrome, and half of his body was CP. And it was very, very difficult for him to kind of move because, you know, he had high tone on one side and low tone on the other side. And that can be the same way for CP as well. Um, there's some common co-occurring conditions. You can have autism and CP. I do have a couple of those kids on my caseload right now. Um, some have seizure disorders and some also have intellectual, intellectual um, impairments. Um, so we use a classification system when we're talking about kids with cerebral palsy. And it just, it's just a way to help us to identify kind of what their needs are and prognosis. So when I'm getting ready to talk with a parent about activities, then I need to know kind of what their level is at so that way I can provide them with the best activities. So a child like with level one or level two, um, they don't need any type of equipment. They actually can do most activities, running, jumping, stairs. Um, they may just do it at a slower pace or they may just look actually a little bit awkward when they're doing it compared to neurotypical peers. Um, a child that's at the, the level three, they're using a walker or a wheelchair, but they're actually independent using those walkers or wheelchairs. They can get themselves in and out of them. They can get themselves on and off the floor and things like that. Um, a child at level four and level five, these are ones that need the most help and the most equipment. Um, they usually need adult assistance for most tasks. Um, they can use a power wheelchair or they need an adult to kind of help them get wherever they're going. Um, level four and level five are the two areas that we're going to focus on the most because a level one, two, or three child, you can actually do some of the same things that we already talked about. Um, but when you're out there on the mission field, these children 
are going to be the ones that are most likely going to need help because you're not going to have access to equipment to give them the best positioning or to help them with mobility and things like that. So these are the ones that we're going to focus on. And it's really just talking about some how do we teach the parent to carry them correctly, to put them in positions, to just help them to be able to move, I guess, to the best of whatever level of ability that they're going to have. So a child that likes to be in this extension position, you know, anytime you try to, to move them into flexion, it seems like the child is way stronger than you, and you're like, why is this child so much stronger than I am? Because you can't get them, you know, into flexion um, because their tone is so strong. We want to put them in positions of flexion as best as possible. So when they're younger, we want to carry them in flexion um, as much as possible to kind of decrease that tone, but then also allow them to move. Because when they're in their extension patterns and they're so stiff, they don't have opportunities to move. So if we put them in a different position, now they can utilize and start using their muscles and start being able to move um, in, the best that the, in the best way that they can. So for kids that like to be in a flex position, these are the kids that like to curl themselves up in a ball, and then, you know, you're trying to pull them straight, and then they just go right back into a ball. We want to carry them in extension patterns. So, you know, Superman is a great position to carry them in, you know, or sideways. Um, but any position of extension, again, that will allow them to use whatever type of movement that they have um, to start getting stronger to the best of their ability. Um, so really for this, these level of kids, um, we really focus on, we want to focus on positioning and uh, handling when we don't have access to equipment. If we don't put them in various positions throughout their day, they're just going to start to develop contractures, and then that makes it even harder for the parent to be able to carry them from one point to another, or, and then when they get harder for the parent to carry, they just leave them there, and they can develop pressure sores, and then things just start kind of going downhill from there as far as their quality of life. So really putting them into different positions. Um, for both of these positions, you can use blankets and you can use pillows to put them in sideline. You can use the blankets and pillows to put them up against the wall like we had for the other child, but then you can position them so that way they're not going to fall over. But then they get out of the position of just, <clears throat> excuse me, of laying on their back or being, um, you know, in one position all the time. Um, so this, you know, putting them on their stomach, I mean, this is a picture I got, which I thought was pretty cool. It makes you stand out of some tree post. Um, but we want to teach the parent to change their position every 30 minutes. Can you see it? Um, so that way they're not developing these pressure sores. They're not getting contractures. And then we can also use some of the stretching positions, the hamstring and the calf muscles. Those muscles can have a um, high frequency of getting tight, which makes it difficult for them to have even the remote possibility of being able to stand. Um, so I put this picture in here just to talk about the importance of handling and stretching. This is a little girl. She is nine years old now. I've been seeing her since she was, I think, nine months old. Um, and she's a level three, so she uses a walker, and she uses a wheelchair at school. Um, but she's always gotten PT twice a week, you know, since she's since I started seeing her. Bomb stretches her out daily. I stretch her out daily. This is this flexion is her preferred position. She lays on the floor at home. She watches her YouTube, you know, or she sits on her knees and she watches her YouTube. 
Um, and she's starting to get tight. Um, and this is with us stretching her on a regular basis. So those families um, that have kids that don't have equipment and they don't know about stretching, it can get much, much worse. Um, she's already starting to get some knee contractures. She's actually scheduled to have surgery in January because she's got hip dislocation. So this is with us monitoring and constantly um, providing therapy for her. So you could imagine a child that doesn't have any of this level of exposure as far as therapy. What could happen if we don't train the parent to properly put them in positions um, and stretch them out appropriately? Um, so that's kind of it for the exercises and activities. Um, so just parent education. A lot of times, especially for my parents with children with Down syndrome, they always tell me, oh, the child is just lazy. That's why they don't want to move. Or that's why, you know, they can't do this. They can't do that. Um, it's not that the child is lazy. It's that they're learning something for the new first time. And it's hard. And they're a child. And, you know, they don't like you doing telling them what to do. Right? So it's not that they're lazy. Um, it just, we have to realize that um, they don't have the mental capacity that we have when we say, all right, I'm going to the gym. I'm going to work out. I'm going to do it. You know, they're like, nope, I just want to do the easiest way. Just leave me be and let me let me live my life, you know, lying on my back and not moving. So um, they have to remember also that progress takes time. Here in the U.S., when we're treating kids um, in the school district, we write goals for once a year. And so we give that child an entire year to meet a goal. Um, and so we have to realize that it's not going to just happen overnight. You know, that's why I give parents exercises six months at a time. Because it takes a child a long time to learn something. And then you add on top of that a disability or low muscle tone or high muscle tone or difficulty with cognitive abilities. It takes a long time. So I always try to reassure the parents that, you know, just be patient. They're going to get there. You know, you just got to keep at it and keep working, you know, through all the tears and, you know, the fits. And they, they eventually will get to do it. Um, and then I remind them, too, that practice makes better. They may not necessarily get to be to the level that you want them to be, but over time, they will continue to improve. And if the parent builds the exercises into a daily routine, you know, every time before lunch, we're going to do these activities, um, then um, it starts to become a little bit easier as they go along. And then just general tips. So I put this video in here. Um, Follow the child's lead. It's important to know when the child is ready and when the child's not ready. Um, so you need to also know when to quit. So we're trying to work on walking, and he's not having it. He, he really is not. You know, I'm really trying to force him to do it. And he's like, he's like, nope, I'm not ready. I don't want to do it. And then he eventually just collapses on me um, and doesn't move. So we really need to be able to follow the child's lead. If we make it fun for them, then they're more willing to do it. But then we also have to know when to stop and give them a break. So um, that's important for parents because I have some parents that just, they want something to do every single minute of the day to help their child improve. Um, but it's important for them to have breaks to be able to, you know, kind of just take a breath. We all need that mental break of not doing anything. And so a child needs the same thing of just leave them alone and leave them be. Um, using visual demonstrations, you doing the activity first and then watching you. Or if they have a sibling, you know, having the sibling do the activity, those are great for a child to learn. Um, making it motivating, using toys or a familiar face, um, and then just having fun. You know, the more fun you make it, the more willing a child is going to be, want to play with you. 
Uh, and then at some point, too, we have to realize um, they may, may not be able to develop the skill, and we just may have to be okay with them being where they are, or maybe we have to be okay with them walking on their tiptoes or, you know, scooting on their bottom versus crawling. Um, so they also need to realize that it's okay to kind of, um, you know, this is where they're going to be, this is where they're going to be, and that's that. So um, I did put on here some resources. Um, this one here is for the, the levels and the stages for the cerebral palsy. Um, it's a great resource. It, it gives you, for each, little, each level, one through five, what a child between the ages of two and four should be doing, between six and 12, and then I think between 13 and 18. So it gives you a really good idea, um, you know, to have as a resource when talking to parents um, if you're not quite sure as far as prognosis or what they should be doing. Um, and then this one here, um, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of um, the Disabled Village, but um, they have some great resources. And that what I really liked is all of the pictures in there are using common things. So they made a wedge out of a tree stump, and they made a stander out of some wood pieces and things like that. So it's a really good resource as far as how to create um, different devices that we would have here in the U.S. that we could just get through insurance, how to use everyday products or, you know, nature to make some of those certain things. So... And then that's it. Um, anybody have any questions? Or, oh, sorry, were you, did you want that? Go ahead. Oh, no? Everybody got that? I will also, I didn't yet, but I will also upload it to the um, GMHC um, website, so that way you can have that plus the pictures. Um, and then does anybody have any questions? I mean, if you don't have questions now, this is my email, um, so anybody can feel free to email me or, or anything like that. Okay. Uh, yes. I have a couple questions. Mm -hmm. um, mine's Jordan. I'm a community pediatrician. Um, one question is, in my training, I, like I saw on your slide with Down syndrome, like walker toys would be helpful. Mm -hmm. I've heard to avoid them like the plague because they use their arms instead of their legs. Um, I am okay with walker toys as long as they're ready for standing and for ready for walking, right? Because sometimes they're not ready, and you're right, they just lean on it, and then they just push it with their chest and their trunk. Um, but as long as, for me, as they're holding onto it versus leaning on their chest, then I will use it. A lot of walker toys now, they have, um, you can change the speed on the wheels, so you can slow it down, so that way they actually can stand upright. Or some of them that don't, I, what I have parents do is I have them strap some ankle weights or even like fill a bag of rice and duct tape it to it to slow it down because once you slow it down, they can actually stand up right. What I don't like for them to use is um, the little bouncy things that they go in because then it makes them – so the push toy walkers are fine. Are you talking about the one, the circle ones where you actually put them inside of them? Uh, no, I was thinking – The push toy. So the circle walkers are the ones that I don't like because then it makes them prone to going up on their tiptoes. And, I, you know, I want to avoid them going on their tiptoes. I want them to walk. But um, as long as they're actually able to stand upright and have good, like, posture when they're doing it, I've never had any problems with a kid using using a push toy. So, yeah. Uh, I'm not familiar with dystocia. You mean like... Um, the shoulder gets caught in the 
Um, I honestly have never had any um, children with that, um, but I would probably imagine, you know, strength, is, strength is an issue. Um, so I would do a lot of weight-bearing, upper extremity weight-bearing. So prone on elbows, right, and then going to – so using a firm surface too, right, because a soft surface, they can just kind of lean into it. But if you're using a firm surface, then we're starting to develop that musculature in the shoulder to help with, you know, kind of keeping it, keeping it there. And then I would also work a lot on, if they're, if they're a small child, prone on elbows and then reaching. Because then they have to learn to shift the weight and then we can reach and work on some shoulder flexion. If I was here in the U.S., I would also use some e-stim and some kinesio tape too to work on strengthening and positioning for, for the arm. But I've, I actually have never had that um, that diagnosis before. So. Anybody else? No? Okay. That's it. Thank you.